Well, friends, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 12. We're going to start reading in just a moment at verse 18. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, this is on page 921. Before we begin reading, let me remind you kind of where we are. Last week we saw in our study of this book, Satan thwarted in a striking way. We remember that the devil had stirred up Herod Agrippa and Jewish hatred into shedding Peter's blood. Peter was in prison and yet the people of God cried out to the Lord and God delivered in a miraculous way. Even as centuries were round the clock guarding Peter, the chains on him, he was physically chained to guards, you remember. The power of God couldn't be overcome because no power of hell or scheme of man could ever stay the mighty hand of the Lord. And then we remember seeing the humorous episode where Peter is set free and he comes to knock at the gate and Rhoda, the servant girl, uh, in her excitement, she hears Peter's voice, but she forgets to open the gate. She runs in and tells everybody about it. And then we have that contrast of people, even believers in there, not really believing that Peter had been set free. They called Rhoda crazy, which is usually what unbelievers call believers. But it was a sad scene here. However, Rhoda was willing to receive Peter. She was insistent. And the unbelief of these believers was exposed in God's good providence. Ultimately, that's for their good. And I think that's a reminder to us all that we trust not in our our frame, not in our strength, that we trust not in our faith that we're never going to have a moment where we fail. We trust in nothing flowing from the heart of man. We all see we need a Savior. And the Savior was pleased to rescue Peter. And now He's going to permit them all to tell the wondrous work of what God has done. Well, as we pick up the scene, Peter has run off to hide somewhere, and Herod and the guards are left with an empty cell block. What kind of response is going to be seen to this situation? Let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us before we consider His Word. Lord our God, we pray that You and Your sovereign power would come near to us and in our weakness make us understand, give us hope in Christ. Cause us to trust You. Turn our attention to Your power and away from unbelief. We pray that You would shine Your light on this Your Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand, would you do so for the reading of the Scripture? Acts 12, beginning in verse 18. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Well, this is God's holy word. May he be praised. Brethren, please be seated. We've already seen in the book of Acts that the Lord our God can break the hardest of hearts. He did it with Saul of Tarsus. However, while the Lord has mercy on some, He hardens others. And here we note the result of that hardness, a stubborn refusal to give glory to God. Now as we watch things unfold with Herod, we're reminded of various ways the Lord overthrows the devil and his schemes. Our God can change one of Satan's servants, Saul of Tarsus, and bring him to himself. Or the Lord God can just crush a servant of the devil. But either way, the Word of God prevails. And that's what we see in our text. So let's note three things as we make our way through the passage. First, I want you to think with me about truth suppressed in verses 18 and 19. Truth suppressed. While the responses in the church to the miracle of Peter being set free from prison were mixed, ultimately, all the saints of God believe in the power of God. They see that there's nothing the Lord can't do. However, the responses to this miracle haven't stopped because Luke now points us to the scene at daybreak among these unbelievers, both with Herod and with the guards who were supposed to watch Peter. Look again at verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Now that word translated disturbance has the sense of panic. This is a full-blown consternation of soul and fright in view of what cannot be explained. There's potentially dreadful consequences to follow, and they know that. Interestingly, though this word is rare, this word is used in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 9 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when the Lord afflicted the Philistines. Here was the scene, maybe you remember. Israel took the ark of God into battle like it was a rabbit's foot. And God wouldn't allow them to dishonor Him in that way. They were defeated. The Philistines took the ark and they promptly set it up in the house of Dagon, their God. And as they set the ark in front of Dagon, the message was clear. Dagon, our great God, is greater than your God. Well, for two consecutive mornings, the priests of Dagon awoke to find Dagon toppled over on his face and parts breaking off. This humorous episode because they have to pick up the God and stand him back up. It's a little biblical sarcasm, uh, poking fun at idolatry. But the Lord was telling these pagans in a way that they could understand, Dagon is nothing before the true God. He's powerless. He's empty. But they didn't get the message. They suppressed the truth of the Lord in unrighteousness. Thus, the Lord gave them more clarity. He afflicted them with tumors through all the Philistine territory. And the result was, as the lords of the Philistines call a meeting together, they recognized the people were stirred up in a great panic. There's our word. A great disturbance. They were disturbed, full of fear, full of dread, terrified by inexplicable power. The hand of God was heavy upon them. That's the sense of our word right here. And in both ancient Philistia and in Jerusalem, as it's in our passage, these pagans 
are seeing evidence of the hand of God and they are afraid. The soldiers have no explanation for how Peter disappeared. And that brings them into a state of perplexity. A looming sense of the supernatural. Everybody remembers in Jerusalem, a few years back, the apostles were another time inexplicably but supernaturally set free from prison by an angel. It's probably the chief reason why Peter was being guarded by so many soldiers. They knew that God could do something and they were trying to stop it. But whatever thoughts they had in the back of their minds about Peter's claims or the miracles done by the, by the apostles, still, they don't consider God's intervention and their sin in arresting Peter. Now try to imagine, if you can, that you're one of these soldiers. Remember again, there, there are four squads of them, and each squad had four guys each. And everybody's giving constant attention to Peter. Is it really probable that four guys who are on the watch, two of them physically chained to Peter, and two at the door, could all spontaneously fail, fail so as to let the prisoner go free? Well, no, it's not possible. These guys know if they nod off, they're dead men. And yet, they know they didn't go to sleep, and they have no explanation for what has happened. Imagine them having to go and tell Herod what happened. Peter is gone, and um, um, uh, we, we have no idea how he got away. Now, Herod himself remembers that supernatural episode earlier when all the apostles were set free. So, surely he's going to think of the power of God here, right? No. He doesn't even pause to consider the Lord. Rather, Herod has the soldiers make a search. So they're going all throughout Jerusalem, turning over every rock, trying to find Peter. And surprisingly, it yields nothing. Verse 19. But Herod wouldn't tolerate being bested, proven to have lost control. So instead of considering that the Lord has acted, that he's gotten everything wrong, that Jesus really is raised from the dead, and his witnesses, the apostles, have been performing miracles, and he can't deny them, instead of seeing the growth of the church, and there's no way Herod can win. Think for a second, brethren, of all Herod's been around to hear in the last 10 to 15 years. Jesus had come before him for trial. He heard of the resurrection multiple times. It's been ringing out throughout the whole city. And it's not like Herod went to the empty tomb, and he's thinking it's not empty, and got out some bones and said, hey, everybody see? See, Jesus is really dead. He couldn't do that. The tomb is really empty. He's wrong. Herod's wrong. But he won't acknowledge it. Herod watched these apostles go from frightened men, scared of servant girls, hiding out and locking the doors to bold proclaimers of Jesus Christ, not backing down in the face of any threat. He's heard it all. And yet, what does he do? Well, like Pharaoh of old who saw all the plagues, Herod just hardens his heart. And now he does something to save faith. You see, if a prisoner let, sorry, if a soldier let a prisoner escape, what would happen? Well, ordinarily, they would be executed. Now, if you're still thinking of that prisoner, put yourself in their shoes. Being put to death for a failure to do your job is a pretty strong deterrent not to fall asleep. In fact, if you remember, the same issue comes up at the resurrection of Christ. 
The soldiers are posted at the tomb and they're responsible because Jesus is gone. They run to the Jewish leadership and say, and angels appeared and they tell the whole story that the stone has been rolled away. Jesus isn't there. And by the way, in, in the Roman custom, if, if you die because you failed, they would uh, strip the top part of your clothing down and set you on fire. It's not just a simple beheading. It's even worse. But the Jewish leaders back in Matthew 28 had said, you are to say the disciples came and stole the body. That's a bad story, right? Because it would look like the soldiers failed. But the Jewish leaders say, it's okay, we'll intervene to the governor on your behalf. Herod offers no such intervention here. Verse 19, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. The official government story is the guards were careless and they will all die. What is that telling us? Herod would rather kill innocent people than consider he could be wrong. What wickedness. The believers are showing joy and amazement and here is this ungodly man like the devil himself raging and wreaking havoc. The blind will go on being blind. And yet the blindness is culpable. It's a stubborn refusal to embrace the evidence that's right there. Sometimes the wondrous works of God, which are so obvious and demand faith, yet makes a hardened sinner become even more hardened. How does Paul put it in Romans 1? The unbeliever, though sees the greatness of God declared in the heavens, the truth of His undeniable power and divine nature, and yet he, he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He pushes it down. The fact that God is real and active, He refuses to deal with it. And in that suppression, He just gives Himself over to more evil. It's exactly what Herod is doing here. Filled with murderous rage. And like his grandfather, who was ready to massacre all the children at Bethlehem, lest another king displant him, this Herod wants to flex his muscles. Now friends, as we look at this passage, if you are here this morning and you have a different response than this, that you actually believe in God's power, that you acknowledge that Christ reigns and you have an eagerness to abandon all and serve Him, you should praise God that your eyes see. We have been rescued from this stubborn-hearted unbelief only by the mercy of God. And you should ask yourself, why am I not like Herod? Because that's the, that's the native response of my evil heart. But God has come with grace and He's removed our blindness. Indeed, while the world is scheming up plans to push away the truth, the people of God are praising Him for His mighty ways. And yet, there could be some of us who are here this morning who recognize the power of God, who know the victory announced in Jesus Christ, who've seen the Lord change people, and yet we still hesitate to bow the knee to Jesus. You're waffling. Is there a tacit acknowledgement that the Lord does great things and yet a failure to ultimately trust Him? We need to be careful, dear friends. Herod and these Jews here are religious people. People who prayed, yet for them it was all formalism with no heart for God. Let none of us be found seeing the truth and suppressing it, 
making excuses and refusing to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But then second we see, not just suppressing the truth, see Herod struck. The end of verse 19 reports that after Herod had the soldiers killed, he headed off to the city of Caesarea. It's a coastal city where Cornelius had been converted back in chapter 10. And that was home base for Herod. His grandfather, Herod the Great, had built a great mansion, a luxurious palace in this town. So again, the situation is getting worse for Herod. Herod weaves the pressure of Jerusalem with the bloodshed that he just committed and all the questions striking his conscience about God's power, and he goes to the beach. That's what you do, right? When you're being pressured into considering the great claims of God, let's just go to the beach. Escapism. This is escapism at its finest. It should remind us actually of Herod's uncle, Herod Antipas. Maybe you remember him. He was having a a sordid birthday party with his own stepdaughter, Mark 6, doing a provocative dance while John the baptizer is locked up in a dungeon downstairs. Herod had gone to hear John the baptizer preach and he was convicted in his conscience, but he wouldn't repent. He just left John in jail. That is, until this moment when a drunken, lust-filled Herod told the dancing girl, you can have anything in my kingdom, even up to half of it. And what does she want? the head of John the baptizer. And he does it. He quiets his conscience. He ignores the pricks of conscience and he parties on. He acts like there's nothing to whom he or no one to whom he'll be accountable. There's no judgment. I can do whatever I want. Or maybe we can think of Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, another guy partying on. He pulls out the best of his gold and silver, that is the gold and silver from the temple in Jerusalem where they took it, and they indulge in special libations to the false gods. And he does this on the very night his kingdom is being invaded. You remember, if you know that story, Daniel 5, a hand appears to write on the wall. You might not remember that. I'm sure you remember the saying, the writing on the wall, that ain't good. If the writing on the wall is coming against you, it means judgment is upon you. And Belshazzar is judged for his wickedness. When you suppress the truth, the day comes when your sin will find you out. And it may happen quickly when you're boasting in yourself. Pride comes before a fall, the Scripture teaches, and it can happen in a striking fashion. You see, while Herod is in Caesarea, another political issue comes up that's going to lead to his demise. We, We read in verse 20, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now Luke doesn't tell us why, but most likely what's going on politically here is this. Tyre and Sidon were coastal towns right on the Mediterranean Sea to the north of Caesarea. And they, it seems, have permitted an embargo of stuff getting into Judea because they don't like the fact that Herod is using Caesarea as a port and he's cutting off their money. If you mess with somebody's money, They might get mad at you and do things. That's what Herod's doing here. But Herod got angry at their little diplomatic duel and the people of Tyre and Sidon saw that they were in trouble. So they came to Herod, verse 20, in one accord. That is, they came with their cap in hand ready to ask him to forgive them. They approach Herod's chamberlain, his chief of staff, Blastus, verse 20, and they ask for peace. Note the reason why. Because their country depended on the king's country for food. And they have to read between the lines here. 
it appears Herod was keeping food from getting to Tyre and Sidon because of their little diplomatic battle. The attitude was, you embargo stuff for me and my kingdom and I'll make sure you starve. That's the kind of man we're dealing with here with Herod. This was cutthroat politics. But now Herod has put them at his beck and call. Here they are. They're going to bow to him. Well, the day comes when these two cities will do anything to make Herod back down. And verse 21, an appointed day came when Herod put on his royal robes. Now, Josephus, some of you probably heard of him. He's a first century Jewish historian. And he writes of this whole scene. By the way, a reminder that the Bible is true history because Josephus is writing about exactly the same stuff. And he tells us that this event in Caesarea happened on what was a significant occasion for Caesar. It was probably Claudius Caesar's birthday, August the 1st, A.D. 44. We can actually date this. This is just a few months after Peter's escape. But Herod isn't thinking about Peter's escape and the supernatural at all. Because at the festivities, we turn to see how he responds to Tyre and Sidon. And Herod comes out dressed to the nines. Luke and Josephus both record what happened. They have subtly different details, but they all tell the same story. Herod had right here what I would call a red carpet moment. A Beyonce, Taylor Swift, diva-like, attention-seating situation. Here's what Josephus says. Clad in a garment woven completely in silver. Let that hit you a second. Clad in a garment woven completely in silver so that its texture indeed was wondrous, Herod entered the theater at daybreak. And it's just so happened that Herod has this theater designed that the sun beats down on him right as the dawn comes up, which is when Roman business is conducted, right as the sun comes up. And he's there sparkling like a peacock in his feather. I remember in 2009 when my family visited uh, the Queen's land. We were at Buckingham Palace and we were in the back, you know, looking at the things outside in the gardens and there were peacocks everywhere. And there would be these male peacocks come up to the female peacocks. And the male peacocks, you know, are the fancy ones. And they throw all their feathers up and they start this little shake. And the ladies are just eating, completely ignoring them. Herod didn't want to be ignored. He's shaking like a peacock. As the sun glimmers on his silver robe, it inspired by its glitter, radiance and fear and awe as the people gazed upon it. And then Herod with his robe, he sat down on the throne and he delivered, Luke says, an oration. Nobody tells us, Luke or Josephus, what he said, but the response is bigger than Beatlemania. Because the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God and not a man. Now the folks of Tyre and Sidon, they're, expo they're disposed to a little extra flattery, right? Because Herod's been mad at them. But they're praising him as a god. They're worshiping him. And more shockingly, the Gentile pagans praising a god being a man is really not that shocking. They engage in all kinds of idolatry. But more shockingly is, Herod knows better. He's of Jewish descent on his mother's side. When he was in Jerusalem, he followed the Jewish law. He went through all the purification ceremonies. He knows there is one God and you are to have no other gods beside Him. 
But in this moment, this man is filled with selfish ambition. And we read he did not give glory to God. Herod did not renounce this improper worship. Paul and Barnabas are going to have to do this at Lystra in the next, well, two chapters forward. Barnabas will be praised by the Greeks as Zeus and Paul Hermes, the chief speaker. And immediately, Paul and Barnabas run into the crowd. They tear their clothes. They plead with them, don't praise us as gods. We're men of like nature with you. That is the kind of response Herod should have had. But he didn't. Even the unbelieving Josephus is disgusted by this. Herod is drinking in the praise, believing himself to actually have raised up to the power of a god. And immediately, the judgment of God comes. Look at verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Now friends, there's a play on words here in the verb struck in the original because back in chapter, our chapter, back, back in verse 7, Peter had been struck. Same word. It was a struck on the side. He was striking him to wake him up. The angel can strike you to give you salvation. But here the striking is different. This blaspheming man, this persecutor of believers is walloped because he refuses to honor the Lord. We might say that the Lord our God who is patient enduring the wickedness of sinners, He's been patient with Herod. He has given Herod evidence. And Herod won't listen. And the moment comes when the Lord removes His kindness altogether and lays him low. Josephus gives us a little bit of additional information here. He says the moment that Herod soaked in this praise, he was dealt an internal blow. You know how Luke puts it, Herod was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus tells us that severe abdominal pain rocked Herod right that moment so that he's wheeled away and he dies five days later. Now, the medically oriented always try to figure this out. And here's probably what happened. Herod had ringworms, which was a common problem in the ancient world. And with his ringworms within, they either ate a hole in his intestines or caused an obstruction so that he was in horrendous pain. He went septic and he died. And it's easy to try to jump to the natural explanation and figure it all out. But Luke is clear to say, an angel struck Herod. I want you to think about that. Angels, according to the Old Testament, are agents of God's judgment. And they can touch the body. How do we know that? Well, we know the devil, a fallen angel, can actually possess people and do things to them. What did Satan do to Job's body? Or we can think about at Sodom and Gomorrah when the two angels came to rescue Lot. They struck the wicked men of the city with blindness. Angels can physically affect your body if the Lord so wills. And that's what He does here. And what a frightening scene it is. Two things we should take away from this little section. One, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you trifle with the Lord, if you ignore a screaming conscience, if you run roughshod over the truth of God's power and the reign of Jesus Christ, the day will come when you will face judgment. Look at the biblical record. Pharaoh, the Jerichoites, Achan, Goliath, Nadab and Abihu, Hophni and Phinehas, Saul, Nabal, 
Ahab, all the way down to Judas. I'm leaving people out. Don't trifle with God. Don't exalt yourself. Now, of course, it may not be that you are struck by an angel and eaten by worms. But here's what I tell you will be the truth. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. There is time now to flee to the Savior of sinners and bow before Him. Seek Him while He may be found. That's one thing to know. But a second thing to mention, and this was encouraging. This is a hard section, isn't it? So much judgment, so many difficult things. But here's an encouraging note. Brethren, remember how this chapter started? James was beheaded. Peter was in prison. Herod is acting like a tyrant, killing people in the church. But now look at what has happened. The triumph of Herod is turned on its head. The tyrant is meeting the terror of God because our God will not abide sinful, bloodthirsty men to stand. He will overthrow Satan and his kingdom and build the church. Brethren, Herod's death is just a preview of the deliverance that all of us as the saints of God will see one day. Because the day is coming when every foe will be struck and we will sing, we will see the kingdom of our Lord become, sorry, the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever. And you'll sing the hallelujah chorus and it will be even better because in that day, all of our tears will be wiped away. That's the hope in which we live. The troubles of this world will be fierce, but tyrants will not ultimately triumph. So see the hallelujahs even in this passage that God would overthrow wicked men. What a comfort to the people of God. And then finally, see with me, the word spreads. It's a brief point here. Herod had sought to squash the church, but as the dirt is thrown over his grave, what do we read in verse 24? But the word of God increased and multiplied. Now, Luke's language is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, the verbs to increase and multiply come right out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus chapter 1, where a new pharaoh is about to come to power to cause great distress to Israel. But what is happening to Israel and Egypt in this cauldron of trouble? Moses says the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. That's exactly what's happening right here. The new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, is growing amidst opposition. Imprisonments, famine, martyrdom, all the forces that the devil can wield against the church are totally failing. Yes, the saints are experiencing distress, and let's not be pulled into some type of triumphalism as if the growth of the church means the escape of all difficulty. Y'all can go down the streets of various places in our community and you can hear the health and wealth message, which is no gospel. Jesus said, in this world you have, will have tribulation. There's trouble here. And the church is facing trouble. However, they are growing in the midst of affliction. And it's interesting the way Luke describes the growth. He describes it with this echo of Exodus 1 to show that the church is growing spiritually strong. Not just numerically strong. Spiritually strong. So we're seeing people converted. Their numbers are increasing. But we're also seeing the saints fortified in their faith. And yet as Luke describes it, he doesn't say that 
the church or the people were increasing and multiplying. He had said that various times throughout the message. What does he actually say? The word of God increased and multiplied. Now, why say it like that when you really mean the people? Well, Luke is saying it to stress the means of church growth. How did the church grow? It wasn't by games and gimmicks. It wasn't through human strategies and church marketing. It wasn't through concerts and light shows. The Word of God was proclaimed, and that's how the church was growing. People were being saved and sanctified because the Word was preached. Peter's going to speak in the future when he writes 1 Peter of how souls were born again through the imperishable seed of the Word the living and abiding Word, and that is the Word that was preached to you. And then he adds, 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies crave or long for the pure spiritual milk, the Word, that by it you may grow up or increase. Same word we're reading here. That you may increase into salvation. There's a sense in which you know the amazing marketing ploy of milk companies. Milk, it does the body good, right? Well, mama's milk does the body good. And God's milk, that is His Word, causes us to be increasingly conformed to Christ. Now I ask you, brethren, as we wrap up, is the Word doing that among us? Are we treasuring the Word of God who gives the increase through the Word? Are we delighting that He takes His Word, He presses it to us that our faith would grow and Christ be adored? What does revival look like? Whether that be a large-scale revival with many conversions, or whether that be a small-scale revival, just maybe the reviving of my own heart. Revival looks like the Word of God increasing and multiplying. Was that happening in our hearts? We live in a world of lots of opposition to the truth of Christ, but is the Word of God more and more precious to us and bearing fruit within us? Yeah, we're not seeing a great awakening type revival here. But brethren, even today, today, God has added to our numbers. Today, He has drawn folks in and He's growing people. Shouldn't that thrill us? While the world is in great distress, God is taking His people and He's multiplying us. What joy then should that yield from our souls? As we close this chapter, this is a, A bit of a transition in the book of Acts. This whole chapter is really the last time we hear about Peter, except for a little cameo in chapter 15, and the the attention's going to turn to Paul and Barnabas. So we close with that. Paul and Barnabas come back from a missionary relief effort in Jerusalem, giving famine relief, and they return with John Mark. And it's another little sign that when the church struggled, God upheld them. Again, Hatred opens a chapter. Love closes it. Love closes it. Violence starts the chapter. Relief to the saints closes the chapter. What do we see? God thwarts the devil. Praise the Lord for His power and His grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that You would nourish us on Your holy Word, that it would be as the psalmist says, honey, that's sweet to our souls. Father, we pray that we would drink in this milk of the Word that we might grow 
by it. And Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause us to recognize the encouragement that the saints of God can have in days of trouble, that you will bring final deliverance. And may any today who are waffling between two opinions see their need to flee to Christ while he may be found. Thank you that you are merciful to put truth before us repeatedly, that we might recognize it and run unto the only Savior sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.